Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter, and today my guest is Dr. Valerie Curtis. She is director of the Environmental Health Group, a multidisciplinary group researching hygiene, sanitation and water at the London School Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She is trained in engineering, epidemiolo epidemiology sorry, and anthropology and studies human behavior from an evolutionary perspective. So, Dr. Curtis, welcome to the show and thank you a lot for accepting the invitation. Hi, Ricardo. It's great. Looking forward to it. Okay, great. Okay, so before we get into behaviors that are related to hygiene and things like that, I think we should start off by explaining to the audience what is disgust because it is in fact an evolutionary emotion that we have that primes us to avoid sources of contamination and infection and that's what gives rise then to hygienic behavior, is that it? Uh, yeah, more or less correct, yes. I mean, it's. Uh when we first started working on disgust and we suggested that it might have some evolutionary functions, half of the half of psychologists said, what a lot of rubbish, it's purely culturally determined. And the other half said, yes, of course, it's obvious. So um, sort of some 15 years ago or so, we started setting out the evolutionary logic for why disgust must have evolved to serve a purpose. Uh, and did some of the early um, experimental studies to to test whether the hypotheses that we had were, were were right, and it did seem to be borne out that there's a an obvious logic here. Why would we be revolted by human feces, by vomit, by things that smell bad? Um, because those those are signals of the things that would have made our ancestors sick, and and therefore the ancestors that avoided doing such, that avoided such things that had this powerful disgust reaction, they were the ones that were more successful evolutionary. They had more offspring and they're our ancestors. The ancestors, I like to say the ancestors who who who, who like to eat poo, they weren't they went extinct. They uh that they, they, they didn't make they didn't have uh, they they and they didn't have as many offspring. Um and those offspring were sicker. So you you are a the descendant of a long line of very squeamish people. Mm -hmm. Exactly, but uh, I guess that there's a, there are also other animals and even other types of beings, let's say, that also exhibit uh, hygienic behavior and might also have this same emotion of disgust, either to try to avoid, again, sources of contamination or perhaps if they are already infected by something to try to eliminate it, perhaps. Well, again, you go back to some of the early controversies about disgust. Uh, another one of the culturally constructed emotion. It must be, it must be purely human, um, and and that it's something that 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 was learned. So, you're asking about where disgust comes from. Is it human or is it older than that? Well, every species that we've asked the question of, does it have behaviours that involve avoiding infection, we find it's true. Ants um, have outcast ants who are the ones who clean up the nest. Birds have hygiene behaviors where they remove fecal sacs from, from nests. Um, uh, we know that lobsters 
avoid social contact with other lobsters that have infections. We know that mice won't mate with other mice that that that, are, that have the smell of infection. Uh, and a colleague of mine, Cecile Sarabian, has been doing some absolutely lovely uh, experiments, replicating some of our disgust experiments, but with um, with primates. Um, so she has a lovely film of, of um, macaques in, in, in Japan who are given a piece of food to eat on top of a piece of feces. And when they when they come close to it, they go, oh, I really want to eat that, I'm hungry. But then they kind of go like this, and eventually they pick it up and eat it. Whereas they will, they will if you put the piece of food on a piece of plastic or on a plastic poo, uh, they, they will eat it or eat it much more quickly. So if, Disgust related behavior, if you define disgust as being a system in brains or in neural tissue, if you like, for, for, for animals that don't have brains, uh, that, 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 that predisposes the animal to avoid the things that might make it sick, then if, that, if you define disgust like that, then it's universal. I think, I, think we, I would predict you wouldn't find a species of animal that doesn't have behaviors that help them to avoid getting sick. Uh, so the humans are just one one of the animals that, that that do that. We just happen to have a name for it because we can reflect on our own processes. We can we can say what we're feeling and, and we call that disgust. But uh, it's uh, it's clearly something that's pan 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 animal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, and another thing, because disgust motivates uh, this sort of avoidance behavior that is animals trying to avoid being infected or contaminated by a number of things, uh, one of the ways that manifests itself is in them avoiding, and, and thus as well, avoiding um, other beings of the same species that might show signs of infection or that we might think that might, might bring to us sources of infection and so that could connect, for example, with us extrapolating from the emotion of disgust to trying to avoid contact with people that are not part of our own group, correct? Well, if you think about, I'm trained as an epidemiologist, and if you look at it in the perspective of uh, where is infection risk in the environment, you could you, you could map the office you were sitting in and you'd say, okay, maybe the floor, somebody's dropped it, but maybe there's some dirt on the floor, maybe your cup where you've touched it. But it's the other person coming into your office that is the most likely. I'm not in your office, but if I was, I would be the source. I would be, the, I would be a concentrated source of potential pathogens. So, you know, if I came into your office, I, I would probably shake your hand, but I probably wouldn't share my bodily fluids with you any, uh, any further than that. You'd have to be a rather special person for, for, for me to do that. So, you know, other people, uh, conspecifics are clearly the most important source of infection. So we want to behave in ways that maximize our distance, maximize our chances of not catching something. At the same time, we're social species that get all sorts of advantages from being friends, from knowing each other, from you and I having a talk. We both, we both benefit from it. We both learn and other people benefit from it. So we all want social. So we do this dance of, of trying to get the maximum social contact with the minimum uh, uh, potential infection contact. So if you look at people sitting in a room, they will always be sitting at a good, a maximum distance from each other, 
that corresponds to the ability still to still to be able to communicate with each other. So, so, so clearly we have this basic behavior plan, which is to say, uh, cut out unnecessary contact with conspecifics. Now, who would you, from an evolutionary perspective, of the conspecifics that we're likely to meet, which are the ones who are likely to be most infectious to us? I would, I mean, this is a little controversial, and I'm not sure that the data for this is completely solid, um, but somebody who you already, who is already your family, you've already shared your infections with, so you can carry on sharing your bodily fluids, sharing your toothbrush with them, should you wish. It's not going to make you sick. You're already sharing saliva with, with, with them one way or another. But your your cousin, maybe you, you're not quite so sure where they've been. Maybe they're, they're, they're likely to have an infection that you're not, you're not used to, so you would probably take a bit more care. And a complete stranger, particularly someone who comes from a country perhaps where you have no experience, could potentially be bringing pathogens that you're not immune to. And so they could be a greater risk to you. So we probably do. Uh, I mean, there, there's some evidence that, that for, from a variety of experimental studies that the more distant a person is from your ken, the more likely you are to want to avoid them. Um, and that you can see that cultures might embroider that basic idea and start likely to make us to be dangerous and therefore we should avoid them. Okay, so you've just explained basically why it is sometimes in our interest to avoid people that we don't know in order for us to try to avoid sources of, or potential sources of infection. But uh, then in our history, eventually we developed social or are related to things like uh, purity and pollution. So are those things that we uh, expanded at a cultural level from the emotion of disgust, let's say, culturally acquired or, or something different yeah. from that? Yeah. Something different yeah. from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I always... I always think that culture is a bit like um, the sort of theme and variations. Um, we have the basic themes, which are the things that we have a innate, and of course the word innate is a much disputed, uh, disputed word, but we have a predisposition to learn to be disgusted by certain things. We're going to learn to be disgusted by feces. We're going to be, we're going to learn to be disgusted by, 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 by vomit and, and, and signs, lesions on skin and those sorts of things. But, those can get embroidered by culture. So, I mean, you seem to be asking two questions here. One is about the evolution of morality and how does that relate to disgust? And another one is then how does purity and pollution figure into that story? So I think if I take them as two separate questions, um, the, the first one, so what I, the hypothesis I've set out in my book is a pathway by which moral, by which uh, visceral disgust becomes moral disgust. Uh, and, it, and it's part of this same story that we were just talking about, avoiding other people. So um, if I want to have interactions with you, I need to be able to do this dance of not infecting you so that you will want to be part of my social circle. So I'm very careful to not breathe in your face, to, to wash my hands before I shake hands with you, to not make nasty smells in the room when you're, when you're around. That's what's called good manners. Uh, and, and those are the things that they're hygiene manners. They allow, they, they smooth the path to proper social interaction. 
Now, if I said to you, Ricardo, that shirt you're wearing, it's disgusting. It's really dirty and smelly. How are you going to feel? You're going to go pretty bad, right? You're going to feel ashamed. You're going to, oh, are you going to wear that shirt again tomorrow? No, I hope not. No. <laughs> okay, so, so I've, you, I met, you're behaving adaptively with respect to me. I'm manipulating your behavior to make you reduce the threat of pathogens uh, to me. So your shame makes you self-police. It makes you feel that I don't want to wear a dirty shirt in case Val notices and says how smelly I am. Uh, with, with the fact that you're, and I might gossip about you and say, oh, you know, that Ricardo, he's really smelly. You know, you might catch something from him. Don't be, you know, you don't want to be Ricardo's friend. So w we come equipped with a really strong sense of, I don't want to infect other people. So I, I learn good manners very early on. I have a predisposition to learn good manners. Now, if you have that in your head, I, I can then use that, 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 that sense that you have of you, you not wanting to alienate me by saying, look, Rick, that Ricardo, he's disgusting. He stole my purse. Uh, that Ricardo, he's disgusting. He's, uh, he, he's been saying bad things about, about other people. And this sense of shame and this sense of disgust, the same, it, 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 I mean, the argument I make in the book is that it's a pre-adaptation, if you like. It's, it, it, once you've got the kit in your head to be disgusted by bad, by, by bad hygiene behavior, you can just extend that kit to being disgusted by immoral behavior. And so it's a very simple jump from, from manners which allow us to have these, these everyday social niceties to the bigger, what's called le petit morality, in fact, in, in, in French, it's, it's small morality, to big morality, which is all those big things I can use disgust to shame you, to stop you behaving in ways that might be, that, that, that might damage me in a, in, a, in a much bigger way. And you have a sense of shame if I call you out on those things. So, the, so you go from visceral disgust to manners disgust to moral disgust. So microbes to manners to morality, if you like. Now, of course, as I've said, the things that disgust us tend to be the things that get embroidered by culture. So I will say, oh, that Ricardo, he's not just dirty, he's impure. And that makes you a sort of ritual. You've, you've ritually offended against the, um, against the norms of my society. And you've done it by using material that is, um, that is potentially going to make someone sick. Uh, and, and I might use... I might try and purify you. I might use um, uh, bitter herbs, for example, as they do in Shakespeare. They burn bitter herbs to, to, to get rid of the smell. It's, um, I, they, they might, I might use vinegar or, or, um, or, or lemon um, as purifying agents uh, to, to drive out your, not just your, Ill, your, your, your disease, but your yeah. evil spirits and your, and your wickedness. Uh, so, it, no, I think it's totally not an accident that purity and pollution rules very closely monitor morality rules and they monitor disgust rules and they monitor and they and they mirror um manners rules as well and just interestingly while we were on the point of animals uh blue tits um in in sicily um bring purifying agents to their nests to get rid of parasites so they'll collect lavender they'll collect uh lemon peel uh, and they'll collect old cigarette ends and put them in nests and they th so those are the same chemicals that, that f with the same phytotoxic e effects on microbes that we recognize as being purifying agents and that the a that animals recognize as well as being purifying agents.
So it's something very ancient, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. But now let's move on to, I guess, more practical questions and how we can apply this knowledge more practically, let's say. So it, it is interesting because even though we have this emotion of disgust, it seems that many times it's difficult for people to acquire some sort of, of um, hygienic habits like, uh, and sometimes very simple ones like washing their hands with soap. Um, wh why is that the case? Well, again, I would argue that purity and cleanliness is something that, I mean, you find hygiene behaviors across animals uh, and you include that with the human species. So uh, every traditional society keeps itself clean in some way or another. And I would bet that, that, you know, cavemen get a bad rap for being dirty and mucky, but I bet that they did the best they could without, you know, jacuzzis and warm towels and, <laughs> and soap. So we have a strong sense that if there's something on your skin, you want to wash it off. And, and I think you find universally that that's that's fundamental to, to every culture cleanliness is something that's that, that's encoded in the in the rules and manners that are taught to children from very early age specifically hand washing with soap soap soap's brand new soap is not part of our it's not not part of our evolutionary history so why would we why would we want to use soap well i mean what they do do is put perfume in soap that makes it smell of purity. This is this has got terpenol in it, which is an, another one of those uh, an, another one of those purifying agents. So, what they're trying to do is to cue us to wash our hands with soap using those using those purifying agents. But uh, it's, this is not an ancient practice using soap to wash your hands. It's something brand new. So we're going to have to teach people to do it. We try mostly. We've been trying to teach them through the kind of rational route. You will avoid disease if you wash your hands with soap but in fact most of the countries i work in everybody knows that it's obvious it's kind of but they still don't do it so we're trying to use other evolutionary motives to get people to to, to do it so if you can see i don't know, you can see on this packet but you can see the nurture motive there this is about families bringing up their children in a healthy way um it's not it's not about disease it doesn't mention disease or germs and that sells more soap and again having the right perfume in it sells soap but educating people about germs probably probably is highly ineffective. Probably people already know that already. So that's kind of where we start from in our hand washing with soap programs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess that what you're saying is that it is much more effective to try to trigger the emotion of disgust in people for them to adopt these kinds of hygiene behaviors instead of simply trying to transmit them rationally, this sort of elf education. Yeah. Right. Well, in our, in, in, in our schema of the world, we have 15 different motives. And so if we're trying to get somebody to adopt a new behavior, we screen all those motives. We try and find the one that is the proper domain motive for that behavior. Now, of course, for hand washing, the proper domain is discussed. It's a little bit difficult when you're working with a soap company to talk to them about, about using disgust to sell soap because they're a bit worried that the soap will become disgusting. So it's a slightly double-edged sword. Nevertheless, when we're working in our programs, one of the things we do is, so, so I'll, I'll come to you and I'll say, Ricardo, hi, how are you? Shake hands. Have a nice, good old shake. Now, 
Imagine, Ricardo, that I've just been to the toilet and I've had a really nasty, smelly poo and it's gone all over my hands and then the soap dispenser wasn't working and there wasn't any water and I've just... And now, smell your hands. How do they smell? And you you go like this and go, oh, God, yeah, I get it. You're that, so you, you get this... We call those emo-demos. They're, they're emotional demonstrations that, that, that remind people that, that using fundamental basic emotions that, that, that maybe there's something impure on their hands and that they should deal with it. So those sorts of things seem to seem to help uh, in promoting hand washing with soap, which could save, well, by our calculations, about half a million lives a year if everybody washed their hands with soap properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's very important. Okay, so, uh, and is there anything that is part of the setting where people perform their behaviors because in your work you also talk about behavior settings and sometimes about the behavior centered design to try to change people's behavior towards uh, more healthy habits let's yeah. say so could you please talk a little bit about that and if it has something to do with acquire acquiring hygiene behaviors yeah sure um I mean, as evolutionary psychologists, we think that if you want to change behavior, you've got to start by understanding what it's for. And so, I mean, most most people working in health behavior tend to focus on the psychology, but actually, you know, psychology is just it's just the, the genotype from the phenotype, which is actually behavior. Um, it's behavior that has designed our brains, and and we as species sit in an environment where we're trying to get what we need from the environment, and the environment can be you know, the physical environment, it can be the biological environment, it can be the social environment around us. And we do niche construction. So we've actually designed the, the, the world. In which, I mean, this is part of our niche construction. This is a prop. This is something we've made and, and built to allow us to thrive in the, in the niche in which we live. So to a certain extent, it's a designed environment as well. So we've come up with an approach that we call behavior-centered design because it's about behavior. Duh. It's changing behavior. We should understand behavior, uh, which uses fundamental insights about motivation from evolutionary psychology, uh, fundamental insights about how behavior is, and, and the, this comes more from 1950s, 1960s ecological psychology. The idea that actually most of what we do every day is very routine because we don't want to use our cognition too much. That's expensive. We want to use our, we, we want to use our more automated brains. And so the vast majority, so from when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, the vast majority of your time will be spent in what we call settings. So you'll be, when you have your breakfast, you'll almost certainly be doing exactly the same thing every day with the same people, using the same objects, on the same stage, with the same props, uh, the same routine. Um, when you clean your teeth, if you, if you film yourself cleaning your teeth tonight and then film yourself cleaning your teeth a month later, you will find it is exactly the same. You don't even, you, you, you couldn't tell the difference between the two films. Uh, we're, so, we're, we're such habitual creatures. But it's things like the toothbrush that are determining that. It's things like the sink, which is the infrastructure that you're using, that are determining how you're behaving. And it's the social rules that are determining how you're behaving. So the, the family around you, you're coordinating with them. So we've built ourselves what we call settings, behavior settings, which are partly, partly the, sort of in, the stage and the infrastructure around us, partly the props and the objects we use, and partly the people around us. So that our behavior can be highly ritualized, highly, highly stereotypical. And, and that, that leaves our brains free to have conversations with you about, uh, about other things. I'm not, I'm, thinking, I'm not having to think about not falling off my chair at the moment because I've, a chair is built 
to keep me facing you and my computer is built for, to enable me to have this conversation. I can switch all that off and think about something, you know, you know think about something abstract. Um, so humans are really clever in the way that we've automated our behaviors in, in, into our niches. So one of the things we do is, is, is closely study the behaviors we want to change in, with respect to their niche and then try and see if we can disrupt that. So one of the things we did in, in Nepal, for example, to get people to improve food hygiene behavior was to actually delineate the kitchen as a safe food hygiene zone with a sort of makeover event that mothers would, would all come to. They'd repaint their kitchens, put ribbons around it, hang, hang things in the kitchen, and also at the same time say, I promise I'm going to do the five food hygiene behaviors. Uh, and that was highly effective. We, 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 uh, we got food hygiene behaviors up from about three or four percent to about five to about 50 percent of people actually practicing all five of the food hygiene behaviors we wanted. So it's both a, a the behavior centered design is both a way of understanding behavior, but a way of also a process, a design process building on design thinking where we try and understand the behavior in situ, the way people are actually behaving, a creative process that then tries to tweak those motives like disgust or nurture. And then we roll it out and then we evaluate it using randomized controlled trials and then learn the lessons from that so you can go back into, into new cycles of behavior change programming. So that's what behavior-centered design is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so would it be a fair assessment to say that uh, it is our environment or the circumstances we're in that sort of evoke uh, certain types of behaviors in people? A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm, that's that's what behavior is. It's our. It's it, it actually. I mean, we ask students to try and define behavior. They find it extremely hard to do. But it is. It's basically. It's what animals do to get what they need from from the, from the environment. It's. Uh, it, it's. It, that's what behavior is for. Uh, so it, so unless so if you want to try and change behavior or understand behavior, unless you deeply engage with what behavior is for, as I just described, an interaction with the environment, which the brain plays some part in, but of course, <laughs> but you know, that's, that, that, that's where to focus. The problem has been sort of ethologists haven't known how to chunk behavior up into its component pieces. And I think that's one of the things that behavior-centered design helps us to do, is to help us look at the components of behavior and say, okay, this sequence of actions is leading to an objective, which is allowing me to remove disgust from my life, for example, or to, you know, to, to get some sugar in, into me because I'm hungry or, or, or thirsty or, or whatever it is. And, and, and you can start pulling apart what the drivers are of those sequences of actions that get you the things that you need. So a thoroughgoing evolutionary analysis of motives is probably is the next project that, that we're, well, we've been working on it for quite a while, but hopefully the next big thing is going to be taking to the other basic human motives, of which, as I said, I think we have 15, which include love, they include curiosity, they include uh, affiliation, and they include justice, which is, as we discussed earlier on, is probably intimately associated with disgust in the way that, it, that it's led us to moral behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's sort of an interaction between what the environment evokes in us and also our innate proclivities, for example, in in the form of emotions like disgust. Right? Yeah, I, so the word emotion is so difficult 
to use in psychology because it means different things to every different psychologist. So I've kind of stepped apart from it and I call it a motive bit and, 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 and that we've defined motives very specifically as being those biases in the, 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 in the brain that make us do the things that are adaptive and, and we've broken that up into a number of adaptive tasks, which, as I said, I think there's 15 basic adaptive tasks that we all have to achieve as humans living in the human niche. Other animals have a different set. Uh. Okay, so, Dr. Curtis, it was really an interesting conversation. Just before we go, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow your work on the Internet? Oh, okay, so I'm quite active on Twitter. I'm talking, but I talk quite a lot about um, about sanitation and hygiene uh, because we're involved in big programs in India, for example, to get everybody building toilets. Um, there's uh, my book, um, which is called Don't Look, Don't Touch, uh, which is uh, available in the US with uh, Chicago and in the UK with Oxford. Uh, and that's about the science of revulsion. And uh, that's about it. <laughs> Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the video. And Dr. Curtis, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. And again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.